0: And that it's good to be uh, together today. I missed you guys a lot last week. I've remarked to several people just how it does bad things for me spiritually when I'm not gathering with the saints. And so it's good to see all of your faces. I know that this is a season with a lot going on in many of your lives, and as has already been spoken to today, I know there's a lot of sickness and just circumstantial trial going on in the congregation. There are many who are not with us today. Uh, So for the people that that you know are struggling with sickness and just various uh, kinds of difficulty, uh, reach out to them this week. Uh, Give them a text or a phone call. Meet them for coffee and encourage one another in the faith. Uh, But let's go to the Lord now in prayer uh, as we get ready to consider this topic that affects so many of us uh, in anxiety and fear. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning as sinful people who are prone to struggle in many ways. And one of the ways that so many of us do struggle is with this thing called anxiety and with fear. We live anxious lives, many of us do. And sometimes we really don't even understand where our anxiety is coming from. And Lord, one thing is clear, that if we will have any kind of deliverance Any kind of realistic hope in the darkness of anxiety and in the darkness of fear, it must come from You, or it will come from nowhere. And Lord God, we pray that You would be with us by Your Holy Spirit, that You would meet with us in a way that is obvious, in a way that we can sense and benefit from. We pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word today. We pray that You would give us hope in the midst of even the darkest seasons of our lives as we look to your Son. And we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I said this two weeks ago uh, in the first sermon in this series on depression, uh, but I know there are some new faces in the room, and just want to give everybody a feel for how this sermon series even came to be. Uh, this four part series on dealing with darkness. Basically, four serious mental and emotional health kind of issues that affect probably everybody in the room in some form or fashion. Depression, anxiety, fear, grief, loneliness, addiction. If hands were to go up in the room, if I were to ask for a show of them, I imagine everyone would raise his or her hand to at least one of those. And that includes your pastors. Your pastors struggle with these things. And as we just were talking about the preaching calendar for the fourth quarter of the year, it seemed like a good thing to do from our perspective to try to take these things on. Just because we have heard ourselves and have seen and experienced ourselves a lot of, frankly, poor thinking and poor teaching on these things in the church. And we know it's a common struggle. And so we were eager to begin this sermon series and we continue to pray for the Lord to bless it. Hope to see you for the last two installments. Um, next, well, not next Sunday, but the 31st, we'll be considering grief, uh, and then on January the 7th, we'll be considering addiction. Uh, so you're welcome. Please come back and be with us for for those services and to hear those sermons. For the visitors who are new with us today, I always just like to do this when we preach a, a topical sermon like this. This is not what we normally do. Normally, I'm preaching, or one of the pastors is preaching through a book of the Bible. Uh, we're not just taking on a topic like we are today, uh, so this is rare. And frankly, I said last time I nearly became depressed preparing for the depression sermon. It is like goes without saying that this sermon has caused me a lot of anxiety in trying to prepare it. It's hard to do, and it's not what we normally do. So, if you are eager to hear God's word just preached sequentially, join us in January. We'll be going through the Book of Galatians. Uh, we plan the beginning then. Just a couple of other things to say before we dive into the topic here is that I understand all of what I'm about to say to apply to people who suffer from anxiety and also to apply to people who will care for the, the struggles, okay? So I think we, both groups of people can benefit from everything that's going to be communicated today, though I may address specific subsets of people throughout the sermon. And then lastly, of course, with a topic like this, I can't say everything that would need to be said about anxiety or about fear. And so I won't be able to speak exhaustively too much, but you're going to realize and you're going to notice if you're here for the depression sermon that there will be many similar things said because it's a similar condition uh, to depression. And the underlying root problem is basically the same. It's the fact that we fell in Adam. And we're going to be thinking about what that means uh, for us. And so I don't have a text that I'm going to read right now. Uh, We're going to turn our attention to Matthew's Gospel in a little while. But to begin our time, I want to go ahead and launch into this sermon. The plan for today is to consider five questions. We're going to answer five questions regarding anxiety and fear. So question number one is just very simply, what is it? What does anxiety look like in the life of a human being? What does anxiety look like? When you approach this kind of of conversation, I think we want to avoid being reductionistic uh, as often we are because you hear the word anxiety and you just assume that it's a person who is just nervous and just kind of anxious about everything, kind of skittish and fearful all the time. That can be part of what it is to struggle with anxiety and fear, but there are many different ways that this rears its head uh, in our lives. Many of us who struggle with anxiety struggle with perfectionism. We have to be really good at everything we do. Everything we do needs to be excellent. And it stresses us out to the high heavens. And it causes all kinds of angst and consternation in our hearts and in our minds on a regular basis. We are absolutely terrified of failing. We are absolutely terrified of being inadequate or being insufficient. And so we are anxious, even subconsciously, about Life in general, even just the most mundane tasks sometimes can feel overwhelming. Our anxiety a lot of times is associated with fear of man, fearing other people and what other people will think of us. So I I say this often when we go to pray before the services. When I come to the preaching moment every week, I feel weight and anxiety. Some of that I trust is good. It's from the Lord. It's a weighty task. And some of it is sin. Some of it is fear of you, of wanting to be highly thought of, of wanting you to think that I'm a good preacher or whatever, right? So we can fear people in all kinds of ways, wanting to be liked, wanting to be popular, consumed by what other people make of us. It produces a lot of anxiety in our lives. Anxiety is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes can be attached to circumstances to things that are outside of our control. Corey, you touched on this in your testimony. There, you saw as a young girl things happening around you that were bad, and it's like I am fearful, I'm anxious that these things that I can't control are going to happen to me or are going to happen to somebody I love, and it's going to ruin my life or my spouse's life or my kid's life or my dad's life or whatever, and we are anxious and we are worried. Anxiety, though, sometimes, friends, is completely unrelated to circumstances. Completely unrelated to circumstances. It's just there, inexplicable, beneath the surface. It's like, yeah, I, I just feel like anxious and not at rest and not at peace and worked up in my heart and in my mind, and I have no idea why. I've heard it described this way, and I think this is a pretty good description. Of of what this condition of anxiety can feel like. It's very similar to post traumatic stress disorder for something that has not happened but could. It's like PTSD for something that has not happened but could. And it's real, it's visceral, and sometimes it's just flat out paralyzing. There is an anxiety that is essentially a condition. Sometimes it's more gradual. It's just this kind of constant wearing down of your emotional and mental pads. Right? And finally there's a breakdown. Sometimes it's very acute. An obvious manifestation of this acute anxiety we would maybe call a panic attack. There are many in the room, including your lead pastor, who have had them. And we can get in these cycles of severe Anxiety where we just cannot get our minds to stop. <laughs> this loop of fear and this loop of anxiety that is flat out, it's irrational, it makes no sense, and we are stuck in it. That's the experience. It's what it feels like. And you don't know why. It's happening. And just a good reminder to us when we think about any of these kinds of things, I said this two weeks ago. No one wants to be out of anxiety more than the one who's suffering from it, I promise you. No one wants to be out of it more than the sufferer. And it's just good for us to remember that as we try to address these things as a body of believers walking together. And it's good to remember that, that anxiety cannot be dealt with in terms of logic and reason or even like statistical probability. Right? That, that stuff has no bearing on the real deep-seated anxiety issues that we're talking about. It's just simply not how it works. To a person who doesn't struggle with anxiety, those things make perfect sense. Let me just reason with you for a minute, brother. Let me talk about logical things for, with you for a moment. Sister, I'm sure it's going to help. And, and the struggler is just like, yeah, it's, it's, I, got, I got nothing from that. It doesn't help me. Because so often the issue is underneath the functions of our reason. A quote from Charles Spurgeon along these lines, the great prince of preachers who himself struggled mightily with depression and anxiety. These words resonated with me. I trust they may resonate with many in the room. He says this, there is a kind of mental darkness in which you are disturbed, perplexed, worried, and troubled, not perhaps about anything tangible you can hardly tell why you are so despondent. If you could give a reason for your despondency, you might more easily get over it. What he's saying is, we oftentimes struggle in these dark places and we don't know what to make of it. We can't make up or down. Out of it. Heads or tails. Out of it. If we could identify it, maybe we could wrestle with it better. But sometimes we cannot. And we struggle. We struggle. The last thing that I'll say about anxiety and just what it looks like, what it feels like for many of us, uh, is that it's good to remember that the anxiety and the fear that we experience, they're not caused by anything outside of us, right? We need to remember that. What happens outside of us might provide occasion for our fear. It might even contribute to our anxiety, but they're never the cause of it. The external circumstance. The cause of our anxiety and our fear comes from within. It comes from our heart and our mind that's fallen. Which leads us well into our second question. So if that's what anxiety looks like, at least a snapshot, a broad stroke as to what anxiety looks like, question number two is, where does it come from? Where does anxiety come from? Well, friends, biblically speaking, Anxiety is a condition of the fallen human frame. We thought about this some last week and I'm going to continue to beat this drum because this is something that is poorly understood in the evangelical church, in my opinion, humbly. Sin is a state before it ever is an action. Sin is a condition before it ever is an action. We act sinfully because we are in a state of sin. There is something to be said for the misery that is associated with the fallen human condition. And this is where many of the historic confessions of faith get this right in a way that we often just are blind to in our own day. I'm going to read some words from the 1689 London Baptist Confession that are about sin and the fall of man. They read this way. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, by their sin fell from their original righteousness in communion with God, and we in them, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. What that means is that every part of you, your physical part of you, the immaterial part of you, your heart, your mind, your rational faculties, your moral faculties, your emotional faculties are messed up. Fundamentally, it goes on in the next paragraph. They being the root, that's Adam and Eve, standing in the room instead of all mankind, standing in the place of all people, the guilt of the sin was imputed, credited to their posterity, and the corrupted nature conveyed to their posterity, so that we now are the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Good words describing the horror and the reality and the misery of being a fallen human being as a result of our rebellion against God. So the fall of man affected the physicality of God, and as I've already said, it affected the emotional and the mental realms too. And so there is something wrong with how we feel, and there is something wrong with how we think. Naturally, we're pretty comfortable. I, I mentioned this last time too. I will say it again. We are pretty comfortable in the church to acknowledge the physical effects of the fall. We will banter about how our bodies are falling apart. We'll even acknowledge, like, the sickness that's going like an epidemic through the church right now. We'll talk about that stuff. Oh, it's the fall, man. It's the fall. But then we are so hesitant and uncomfortable. To then begin to acknowledge the mental, the emotional and the spiritual realities, the struggles that are a result of that same fall, because I think that we have in part bought into the lie that mental and emotional and spiritual struggles should not exist for the Christian, at least not for the good and faithful Christians. We should not struggle mentally. We should not struggle emotionally. We should not struggle spiritually. We can't really do anything about our bodies yet. That's kind of how we think. And it's a lie. While all of us struggle with anxiety and fear, like Corey, you said it right, at some level we all wrestle with this. There are others who are predisposed to struggle with anxiety and fear in ways that are acute, in ways that are severe, and in ways that are ongoing. Now that acknowledgement, just like I said two weeks ago, is never a justification of sinful behavior, ever. But it should, as a church, as we think about issues like this, we should be aware of people who have predispositions and proclivities to struggle in these ways. And it ought to produce compassion in how we care for one another. And we should never be flippant or dismissive or condescending in the ways that we talk to others, our brothers and sisters, who are struggling like crazy in the grips of depression or despair or anxiety or grief or addiction or whatever. Fill in the blank, right? That's what's cool about this sermon series. I'm appreciating it just as a quick kind of aside like footnote. These sermons are basically just sermons on a biblical understanding of sin and what it's done to us. You literally could fill in the blank. It's depression, anxiety, whatever, but you could put whatever your struggle is. Anger, lust, whatever. You put it there and we're dealing with it because we're thinking about sin and where it comes from. And then we're thinking about how to deal with sin in the life of a Christian as a local church. So it's massively important that we understand that Christians... Even faithful Christians with good theology will struggle with anxiety and will struggle with fear. We should expect that. We should not be shocked when one of our brothers and sisters sits down with us and says, I'm having panic attacks or I am anxious and I don't know what's going on. Like even the smallest of tasks feels like an overwhelming impossibility to me. We shouldn't be shocked. When that happens. So now we've come to question number three. How has the evangelical church handled anxiety? How has the evangelical church handled anxiety? In short, not well. With respect to Christians in the church, I think my assessment, not saying this is universal, but it's common, the posture is often one of you should be better by now. Like, you've been a Christian for this long or this longer, you're trusting Christ now and you should be better by now. You should not struggle in that way or that way or that way. Sometimes, rarely would that ever be explicitly taught or said, but it is often implied in the ways that we talk and interact with one another. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, the church for several decades now, since the 1970s really, has really been practicing essentially a Christian version of therapy in approaching mental health and emotional health issues. And in this Christian version of therapy, the Bible sort of becomes this handbook for personal, mental, and emotional health. And this... The idea of this kind of therapeutic approach is often that if we can just get people to recalibrate their thinking according to the Bible, then they will be delivered altogether from their struggle. And they will no longer have to battle anxiety or depression, or again, fill in the blank. So this is where you get the approach that I I like to phrase. I've heard guys say this, and I think it's pretty accurate. You get this approach to counseling and a, this approach to the Christian life where you take the Bible to the struggling person. and You say, okay, you're, you're struggling in this way. Well, here are these three verses. Take these three verses and call me in the morning. It's that kind of approach. And friends, I, I would suggest to us as a body of believers that we should not approach the Scripture like a medicine cabinet. That's not its primary function. Is it sufficient for all matters of faith and practice? Yes and amen. And we need to understand it, as we always say, in its redemptive historical context, and not use it, like I said, like some sort of spiritual, emotional, mental medicine cabinet. Like, oh friend, you're struggling with depression. Well, here are your verses for that. And you're struggling with anxiety. And here are your verses for that. And oh, it's anger or lust or whatever. Here are your verses for that. If you'll take these home and read them, pray over them, do some work in your mind and heart, I'm sure the next time we meet you'll be doing completely better. That's the, the thought that's often the approach. The implicit idea, I was talking to one of the, the, the brothers in the church about this a couple of weeks ago over coffee, the implicit idea in this kind of thinking, in this kind of approach, take these three verses, call me next week, is that if you do it right, if you do it right, if you read it enough, the verses enough, if you pray over them enough, if you meditate on them enough, then you'll get better. And if you're struggling with anxiety, in this case, in a week or a month or a year, that's on you. You have messed up somehow. And... It's strange to me that when I assess this and I'm looking at it, it's this weird kind of evangelical version of prosperity theology. The prosperity gospel many of us are familiar with, where it's this kind of the word of faith movement, the name it and claim it kind of theology, where if you pray and ask God in faith, if you have enough Faith, if you know what you want, you envision the getting of it, you believe that you'll get it and speak it into action, you can literally rearrange the universe so that you'll get the new car, you'll be healed of the sickness, whatever. That's prosperity theology. We know that's from hell. We're quick in the evangelical church to bash that kind of theology as we should. But then if you take that kind of thinking and you walk it over into this arena of mental and emotional health, personal reform, I fear that we do basically the same thing. If you do it right, and meditate right, and pray right, and read it enough, then you will be delivered from your struggle. That's the hope that's offered. You won't struggle anymore. Yeah, it might be a mental or an emotional benefit, but it still in large part is earthbound in the way that we think of it. And so much depends upon you. You've got to do it right. And if it doesn't work, you did something wrong. It's sad. It's heartbreaking, really, the kind of bondage that we can plunge people into. They're already warped out of their frame. They're already anxious or depressed or whatever. And then we just kind of heap it on top of them. Well, you're failing in using the Bible. You're failing in your meditation and your prayer life. And that's why you're still struggling. I want to say a few things before anybody gets up and walks out of the room. There is a primary place, a place of utmost importance in the fight, in the struggle against anxiety that the Bible has. The Scripture is the only place that we can go for realistic hope. But here's the kicker. When it comes to the usefulness of the Scripture... It is primarily that it constantly points out the utter faithfulness of God. That's what the Bible does with respect to this fight. It constantly points out the trustworthiness of God, the wisdom, the sovereignty, the personal involvement of God in your life. It points to Him and His character and the fact that He will never leave you in the suffering. It points to the fact that He is faithful through the suffering. It does not promise us immediate or ultimate deliverance from the suffering this side of heaven. It doesn't. And so we need to realize that even when we take people to the Bible, we need to be doing what the Scripture does, what Jesus does. We point people to God, to His character to His faithfulness, His goodness, His sovereignty, His wisdom, His purposefulness in our lives. And that is where hope is found. And we're going to get there in just a moment. And we need to realize that even when we're doing that, this is not some it's better tomorrow stuff. We don't microwave this. This happens over the course of a lifetime. This is going to be a hard-fought battle of faith and prayer and trusting the Lord. We need to know that as sufferers, and we need to know that as caregivers, that that's what we're in for. And I've I've sort of already commented on this, that I care a lot about this. I care about you. I care about me, too, as a sufferer. It's ironic to me how in the evangelical church, we go about counseling people who struggle with anxiety. We give them, what do we do? They come to us struggling struggle with anxiety and our first response is to say, all right, here's a list of things that you need to do. You need to do this and this and this and this. And it's like, uh, do you realize that you're talking to somebody who is anxious and a perfectionist and like warped out of my frame about life in general already and you're just giving me more things to do? And then you're telling me that if I don't do it right, then it's not going to help. And I'm like, you, you have just plunged me into further depths of anxiety rather than helping me. You have just heaped it on me as I'm suffering. I don't want that for CBC. I don't want us doing that to each other. There are better ways to go about caring for people who suffer from these mental and emotional health conditions. And as I said last week, We've got to have a biblical, God-oriented notion of what growth and sanctification look like in these struggles. Because sadly, in the evangelical church, in the States, the only end, the only good outcome in this anxiety conversation is that you're completely delivered from it in many circles. Like, that's the only good conclusion. It's gone. Never to be struggled with again. And again, friends, that just does not square with the testimony of the Scripture at all. We need to understand that victory is not never battling anxiety again. Victory is often just going to be the consistent taking of my anxiety to Christ. It's the consistent placing of my hope and my trust in Christ in the midst of the most severe anxiety that is victory that is growth oftentimes too this maturation process it looks like an increased awareness of the struggle i mean you heard that in corey's testimony you heard it in michelle's two weeks ago that you're more aware of how this kind of creeps up on you and attacks you and grabs hold of you then you begin to respond differently it's not that the struggle is easier It's not that it's less frequent. Oftentimes, as you grow in the faith, you may find it's the opposite. You might find that the struggle is more severe and more often happening, more frequent. But that doesn't for one second mean that Christ is not ours or that we are outside of God's favor. But growth is still happening because we're trusting the Lord through it. We're more aware of it and we're responding in more mature ways ways it's a growth in trust in God that's sanctification that's victory when it comes to this conversation so we're now going to move to question number 4 question number 4 is there any realistic hope is there any realistic hope for sufferers answer yes where do you find it God's word And I'm going to talk about this just under a few few headings. So I've got some some sub-points for us here. First thing that gives me hope, anyway, is that God's people, through history, have struggled with anxiety. God's people have dealt with this issue. As was referenced earlier, the Scriptures are replete with passages about fear and worry and anxiety. It's all over the place. It's like we said two weeks ago with depression. When we were trying to find a scripture reading planning the service as pastors, it's like basically, well, let's just set the Bible down and let it fall, unless it falls to the back inside cover like that. And and you're going to find a verse or a passage that deals with this because it's everywhere. Elijah. Can't help but think of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He is fleeing from Jezebel because she has said, basically, that just like he had slaughtered The false prophets like Elijah had done. She's basically like, look, I'm going to do that to you and more so. And so he is afraid for his life and flees. He finds himself under a tree, despairing of life, asking that the Lord would take him, that the Lord would end his life. He is so worked up. He's so anxious. He's so fearful. He's so despondent. He wants to die. The prophet Daniel, when he's having his visions. Daniel chapter seven fifteen, right after the great verses about the Son of Man. Don't know if you've ever noticed this. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. So even as he's getting this revelation from God, he's wrestling with anxiety and alarm in his mind and his heart. Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, beautiful words that she speaks to the priest. She answers the priest that I am a woman troubled in spirit. That's what she says. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. The prophet Isaiah has a number of passages aimed at, directed to those who have anxious hearts. Right, The Bible is full of this. I could go on and on and on. Pretty much, I would say half the Psalms or more deal with issues of anxiety or depression. And even our Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. We thought last week about how he told the disciples that he was sorrowful to the point of death. That's certainly a depression reality. But when he starts to sweat like drops of blood, whether that's actual blood coming out of his pores, which can happen, or whether it's just a description of agony, it's quite clear that our Lord is anxious over what is about to happen, and He is not sinning. He is anxious over the fact that He is about to suffer the wrath of God in the place of God's people. I mean, if there was ever a reason to be anxious, my goodness, but our Lord experienced it. He knew what it was like to experience the dark night of the soul, as it's often called. That's comforting that God's people, including God the Son incarnate, have experienced this. But the second thing, so sort of subheading B, or number two, under this big question, is this, the promises and faithfulness of God. Is there realistic hope? Yes, in the promises and the faithfulness of God. I could talk for a long time about this. I could preach a sermon series about these things. But God... The Bible is quite clear. Ordains the darkness in our lives. He is sovereign over it. He plans it. He's purposeful in it. He accomplishes His good ends in it. So, just a word to sufferers in general, in the congregation. Do not ever think that your sorrows and your trials are wasted. They're not. God spends our sorrows well. Every tear is worth the pain because God is doing His good work. It's not as though you will go through the trial, you will have somehow messed it all up, and then God's got to go over it and do a redo. He's got to go come in and fix it and give you a second dose. It's like, well, I tried to do this a few years ago and it didn't take. I guess I'll try again. That's not how the Lord works. Every trial we go through is ordained by our good and sovereign God to accomplish the purposes He means to accomplish. This is the witness of the Scripture and that is a comfort. That our sorrows are not wasted and that there's good purposes even when I have no earthly idea what they are. I trust. I trust. It's faith. God the Scripture reveals, is utterly faithful and trustworthy. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 25 and just survey very quickly what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount about anxiety. It's a relatively famous passage, the do not be anxious passage. But Jesus is kinder than many evangelicals in that He gives us a reason. He gives us a grounding for what He's saying. Don't be anxious because. Beginning in verse 25. He's just been talking about store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Then He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Rhetorically, yes. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. To God's people. I hope that you see that. This is not a text of bondage. This is not a text of don't be anxious, full stop. Jesus gives us a reason to not be anxious. He gives us hope, He gives us a ground to stand on. What is that? It's God. It's God Himself. He points out essentially three things. Remember that God is your creator. He takes care of the birds and the flowers. You're made in his image. How much more so will he care for you? Okay? B, God is your father. So kind of narrow the scope. God's people now. Not just the human race in general, God's people. He's your father. If he's your father through faith, if you've been adopted as a child of God in truth, he will care for you. He knows everything you need. He is a good God he's a good father he will provide for you and then third he essentially says remember the gospel remember the kingdom of God the kingdom of God that's coming this news that's being heralded seek the righteousness of God which again biblically I understand is through faith as we put the scripture together so do you see we're going to talk about this more in a minute about how everything Christ does is to take your eyes off of you, it's off of me, my performance, my obedience, my struggle, my circumstance, and it's to put them on God, His character, His faithfulness, His gospel, His kingdom. That's the prescription that our Lord gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is so far from go out there and don't be anxious in your own strength. It's not at all what He's saying. He's saying don't be anxious because here is who your Father is. Is And here is what He's like. Another promise of the faithfulness of God is printed on the front of your bulletin. That God cares for you in such a way that you can cast your anxieties upon Him. That is a sweet. One of the sweetest verses just in my own mind this week in the New Testament. In the whole Bible. Cast your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. It's like, are you kidding? That the God of the universe cares enough about me that I can take my anxieties there and He gives a rip. Yes, He does. Again, He's your Father if you've trusted His Son. He's adopted you as His own and He loves you and cares very much about even the details of your life. And so we can go to Him. Talk to Him when we're afraid and when we're anxious. Ask Him for His help by His Spirit. Ask Him to help you through His Word and His people. And then... I mean, again, so many places we could go, but I feel remiss without mentioning Romans 8. The great ape, as it's often called, right? The wonderful promises of Romans 8. That, I mean, there are tons of them that we could look at. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. But then also that we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Circumstances, death, trial, doesn't matter. We will never be separated because God is God, because God is good, and God is faithful. That's the promise of the Bible. Subheading number three, or letter C under this fourth big question is this. Is there any realistic hope? Yes, there is. And in particular, we're going to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope that we have in Christ. So, when we will talk about the good news of, being, of, of the fact that God has reconciled sinful man to himself through faith, when we talk about that news, how is that life-giving and good and hope-filled for a sufferer from anxiety? I would suggest in a number of ways, but I'm just going to give us a couple. The fact that Christ is our righteousness... That He has provided that for us through faith is a game changer completely. Why? Because we know now that our standing before God is not grounded in anything we do. And it certainly is not grounded in having victory over anxiety. I don't need to worry. I don't need to be fearful about that. I don't need to worry that I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and He's going to look at me and say, Depart, I never knew you. I don't need to worry about that if I'm trusting His Son. That's good news. Because you can pillow your head at night knowing that I have been reconciled to God not based on anything in me, praise Him, because I would be damned if that's true, but I have been reconciled to God perfectly through what Christ has accomplished for me. And so, we can know that our struggles with anxiety and our struggles with fear do not mean for one second that Christ is not ours. It doesn't mean for one second, if you are a struggler, that you are outside the favor of God. Many, many faithful people, people of faith in this book experience suffering, and experience particularly the suffering from anxiety that we're considering today. It does not mean that Christ is not yours. That is a tremendous comfort. The fight, you see, is a fight for faith. It always is. It's a fight to believe that what I often feel, that I'm God's enemy, is not true. And it's a fight to believe that what God has said about me, that I'm His Son, is true. That's the fight of the Christian life. And so, friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you're suffering, you're struggling with anxiety and fear, what wonderful news is it that your hope and my hope is not the absence of anxiety. Our hope is Christ. Period. Our hope is Jesus and what He has done and it will never go away. You can't add to it. You can't take from it. You will make it to heaven not by how tightly you hold to Him, but because of the fact that He will hold you and never let you go. We're going to sing that after this service, that He will hold us fast. That is the greatest hope that could ever be offered to a sufferer from anxiety. And before we we move on from this, I'll give you kind of sub-point D. We're just going to keep trucking here. We're going to do this. So number four under this fourth question. The, note, the fifth question is pretty brief. Is this. This is kind of a comment about hope. This probably is clear to you already in a number of the things that I've said. Just You can write it down this way. Hope is outside of you. Hope is outside of you. I'm going to unpack what I mean. That's good news because, it's good news and I'm going to tell you why. Here we go. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. I'm going to try to be distant. The whole Bible, if you look at it, redemptive historical context, reveals that we are to have an outward orientation as God's people. What do I mean? I mean that we are to be outwardly oriented toward God, love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to be outwardly oriented towards others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the Law and the Prophets. But then it's clear throughout Scripture that what is outside of us saves what's inside of us, right? Through faith, we're constantly to be looking outside of ourselves to God, to His promises, His character, His faithfulness. It's all very outwardly focused in how the Scripture reveals the the Christian life. But there has developed within the evangelical church an an off-centered obsession, from my perspective, an off-centered obsession with the interior of the Christian life. Everything becomes kind of turned in here and focused on me. There's a focus on the modification of behavior in my life, personal reform. According to biblical principle, yes. But I become obsessed with my own growth and maturation. There is a, a focus about and an emphasis on the victory of individuals over struggles and the victory that people have over sin. There is an emphasis, and obsessing over personal health, like spiritual, mental, emotional health. I mean, think about the sermons that are preached in churches all over the place this morning. It's going to be aimed at that. The personal, emotional, and mental health of the heroes. All of this, and I could go on, all of this is very inwardly focused on the interior of the Christian's life. And what's remarkable, I'm not saying all of that is bad. Don't misunderstand me. But here's what's remarkable, is that when we live with this kind of inward focus, it produces bondage. When we live with an inward focus, it produces bondage. We obsess over our performance. Right? We obsess over how we're doing. We fail. We're perpetually, therefore, discouraged. And then we often get to a place where we're doubting our salvation. That's what happens when it's all looking at me. And assessing my growth and all this kind of stuff. When that's all we're talking about. Victory and everything else. You know? And it's, it's good if it's kept in the right perspective. But then here's the other remarkable thing. If you focus inwardly, there's bondage. But when you live with this outward focus on God and on others, there's freedom. There's freedom. You're not so warped out of your frame over your own performance. You're looking to God. You're looking to His Son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness, the hope that's there. And you are aiming as the main goal and the main command over your life. Love one another. That's what you're doing. And when you live like that, there's freedom in that. I'm not constantly having to be discouraged at my failures. And then what's cool is you grow when you live like that. When you look to Christ and you love the heck out of people, you wake up one day and you're like, man, I... I I have grown. I promise you. I would state my ministry on this. You will grow exponentially more with an outwardly oriented life, mind, heart toward God and people than you ever will with an inwardly focused life on your own performance. I promise you. Fire me tomorrow if that's not true. And so, we need to be thinking in these terms. We're going to be thinking about realistic hope. Very quickly, just some practical helps before I land the plane with question five. I would be remiss if I don't mention these things because we are physical and spiritual creatures. There's this thing called the psychosomatic union, the union of our immaterial part with our material part, body, mind, soul, spirit, that kind of stuff. And so it's useful to talk in terms of holistic care and holistic help. We've mentioned medication before. In terms of where the pastors are on this, we think it is okay for Christians to take medication to help with anxiety for a season. We would never recommend you to be on that long term. It could be useful to maybe knock the edge off in an acute season as we're trying to work with the underlying issue. That's a conversation that can be had with your doctor, but also with your pastors, with a counselor. We think there is room for that. There may be other medical conditions that you have that are contributing to your anxiety and your depression, your fear. There may be side effects of other medications you're taking. I mean, these are things you need to be thoughtful about, right? Like, man, I'm anxious and I'm struggling. I'm down all the time. Well, maybe, like, you've got a physical condition that's really messing you up and you should go see your doctor. I mean, that's reasonable, right? So we want to think in those terms. But then, like I mentioned two weeks ago, I'm just going to kind of hit bullet points on this. How are you sleeping? Are you setting aside time at least? I understand, like, I I had a horrible time trying to sleep last night. And not because I didn't make the time, but because I just couldn't. I was struggling with it. And that's different. But are you generally scheduling your life in such a way where you're giving yourself the opportunity to sleep? You need it. You're not God. Neither am I. And you need rest. How are you eating? What's your diet? Are you eating food consistently? are you not eating until like 6 o'clock at night? Doesn't do good things for you, emotionally and mentally. Food is helpful in terms of how you feel. And then also, what are you eating? Like we said before, if you're not sleeping and you're eating trash all the time, you're not going to be doing well, mentally and emotionally. And we would be like ridiculously blind to not talk about that. Exercise. When's the last time you got your heart rate up, (laughs) Right? You know, and, and like sweated and like actually exerted yourself and felt the hormonal benefits of that. That's really good for us. We were made in such a way that exercise and physical exertion is good. Are you building in appropriate downtime into your schedule as best you can? D- appropriate diversion from the task. Little, a little oasis in the middle of the week or the month. Are you doing that? It's wise to do so. And then even just simple things like laughter. Find people within this local church that make you laugh and spend time with them. You know, it's good for you. It's good for me when we can laugh and joke with one another. Praise the Lord that He gives us practical means like that to combat the struggle. But now I want to move to to land the sermon with question number five. Question number five. So that was long. Question number four. Question number five is this: How should we care for strugglers at CBC? How should we care for strugglers? So this is kind of like the word to caregivers piece, specifically. My hope would be the hope of the elders by, of course, by the Spirit of God. I I don't ever want to sound as though I think this can be done in our own strength and effort. Our prayer and hope is that continually, increasingly, by the Spirit of God, these things are true. That we can have kind of a sanctified, common-sense approach to these issues, and what do I mean by that? I mean that based on what the Bible says about sin and based on what the Bible says about humans, that we would have a posture of, of like of course people are going to struggle with this stuff. of course people are going to struggle with these things like acute anxiety because look at what we've become in Adam, and even after conversion, there is this thing called indwelling sin in the life of the believer. if you haven't had read Romans five through eight in a while, do it this afternoon. When you get to Romans 7, you're going to be like, man, that's a real wrestling and a struggling and an inner war going on. And it's like exactly in the life of a Christian. So we have that kind of approach. And then we are eager. I'm going to say it this way, even though it sounds unkind. I think it is kind. We need to wrestle stupidity from the hands of sufferers sometimes. And what I mean is that you've got to kill ridiculous thinking. And I need you to do this for me. Because as a sufferer, I'm saying, wrestle this stupidity away from me. When we ever think that I must be doing something wrong because I'm suffering from anxiety, wrestle that away from me. I must be doing something wrong and that's what's producing this. That's not biblical, friend. Don't think that way. Second thing, we need to wrestle this. I must be outside of God's favor because I'm suffering this way. Take that stupidity out of my hands and out of the hands and the minds of one another when we're living life together. Wrestle it away with all your might because those kinds of thoughts do bad things in the mind and heart of a believer. They are from hell. They're not from heaven. And so continuing here, hopes for CBC by the spirit i is going to kind of touch on some of these. If I, I'm going to read this the way I wrote it because I, I care. I, I crafted this. If, it, if you were going to ask me what kind of a posture, what kind of a culture do I want to see at CBC with respect to sin is this. A culture where people's sins are identified, they are rebuked, and they are held in compassionate accountability. And that people's sins are also viewed from the broader perspective of the fallen human condition. So, there's grace and there's charity. There's room to walk with a limp and there's room to struggle. That's the hope. By the Spirit of God, that that can be the kind of culture we have in our local body. We pray that by the Spirit of God, we have a culture where we are ready to admit that we struggle with sin where we are ready to admit that we struggle with things like depression and anxiety and addiction and grief. I know in my own life, I could talk for a while about this and I won't because this is long enough already. I encountered big God theology a while back. The reformed faith, for those in the room that know what that means. And, And was kind of, even amongst my friends and at the church where I was in Washington, was kind of known for, like, oh, Justin's like, he's a big God theology guy, right? And so it was hard for me for years to admit, and I don't think I was really aware of it very well, but even if I had been aware, I would have been hesitant to admit my pretty intense struggle with anxiety. Because even in my own mind, I was thinking that people, if, they, if I tell them that I struggle with anxiety, they're going to be like, well, he clearly doesn't believe all that big God, sovereignty of God stuff he talks so passionately about. Which isn't true. I do believe with all my heart. And it's been freeing for me in the last two or three years and especially I think in the last year to feel, and this is very much related to the conversation of the life, the Christian life being lived by faith in Christ. I'm saved by faith and not faithfulness and so it's okay to admit the struggle. And so I personally have found freedom in talking not only to my wife but to Branton and to Ron and to others of you in this congregation about my struggles. And I pray that that's common for our whole body. That we are comfortable doing that. And we're comfortable talking about our struggles because we understand that our victory over those is not the ground of our standing before the Lord whatsoever. That we stand in Christ always. The sure and the better Adam. The true fulfillment of the law. Right In Him we stand. And so... That's a hope. Another couple just really quickly for you is that I pray for our church and hope for our church that we are appropriately unimpressed with how messed up people are. That we are appropriately unimpressed when people come in here because a lot of times the young millennial types who come into churches like ours, they're really interested in authenticity and realness which is great. But then it becomes this sort of like contest for who's the most jacked up. Let's talk about how messy we are and just kind of revel in the mess for a little while. And it's kind of like, I want us to have an appropriate godly posture of like, if you think we're impressed with your mess, we're not. Take a number, get in line. I'm number whatever, he's number 47, I guess you'll be number 72. Like that's how we should be in that come, lock arms with us as fellow strugglers and as fellow sinners where we're going to continually point one another to Christ as we live this Christian life. And then I pray that as a result of this, that the chances that any of us would ever go to a struggling believer, and I say that to a struggling believer in the church who's wrestling, I pray the chances that we would ever go to that person and say, hey, look, you need to get it together because you're not living the victorious Christian life. I hope the chances that we say that are zero. Absolutely zero. And then this. This is my last piece. I realize this has been a little bit segmented. Just consider this like the bullet points on the PowerPoint slide, right? Trying to land the plane in under an hour. Um, I think this is massively important. And if you're a note taker, write this down. That we would have the mentality at CBC that church is not where you go to get better. Church is not where you go to get better. The church is where you go when you need something perfect. And that's Jesus Christ. And so we don't want the mentality that you come here to get fixed, that you come here to just have a better life. No, you come here as an imperfect, fallen sinner, hopeless. You come here in search of the perfect, and His name is Jesus Christ. That's the hope, and that's the prayer. And if we have these things in view, framing our conversations and our approaches to anxiety or depression or whatever, And this is what's walking around on the ground. In this church, we're going to be doing just fine. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. and Close this time and and ask Him for His help in these things. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the time that we've had to consider this very real struggle of anxiety that many of us experience. And we, we thank You for Your Word and the hope that it does offer. We thank You that it's not just this momentary hope, but it's an eternal one. And we pray that You would continue to work in us as individuals and as a church by Your Holy Spirit and that You would be growing us as we trust in Christ, that You would be causing us to be more aware of the ways we struggle and that You would cause us to respond more maturely. And we pray that You would be cultivating this culture of grace and charity where we can struggle well together. And we pray that You would get honor and glory for Yourself in the ways that You grow us and in the ways that You use this church. And we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen.